you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. If you don't have one with you, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Matthew chapter 4 on page 759 of that Bible. As a, as a preacher, uh, Sunday afternoons, inevitably, you, you start to be sort of introspective as to what you, you said that day, and I'm always trying to take stock of, of the things that come out of my mouth, and uh, I have a pretty simple rubric. I've got three questions that I tend to ask myself about what happened that day. Did I deal well with the text as far as I, I consider? Uh, did, I, did I actually deal with the text at hand? Did I say what was right, true, and good? And did I say those things well? Did I communicate it well? And last week I went home and uh, I, I went through those questions in my head and I thought, yeah, I think I, I did all, all of that pretty well. I think I was pretty clear in what I said and communicated um, and then I got to my community group, and I had two separate people come up to me individually from one another and say, you know, I was super confused about something, and uh, so I want to take time out to, to answer those, the, two, the same question that they had to make sure that I'm perfectly clear about this. They, they kind of said, you, you loaded us up, but then you didn't answer the question as to how Peter can say baptism saves us. How does baptism save us? How does baptism actually produce forgiveness of sins. Anytime we think about salvation, it is likely that one of the chief passages that comes to mind is Romans 10. In Romans 10, we hear Paul say that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, when we hear Paul say when you confess with your mouth, that quite clearly is not a confession that happens in private. Not only are confessions meant to be public, but the private part is kind of par portioned off there by, by saying that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So the confession is meant to be public. The question then becomes for Paul and for us, how do we confess that publicly? What is the mechanism by which that confession of our mouth that Jesus is Lord happened? Do we come up in front of people and simply tell them? Do we walk an aisle at the end of a, a sermon? Do we, do we raise our hand and pray the sinner's prayer? And all those are perfectly fine ways to handle making an initial confession, but those are not the way that the Bible actually upholds that we make public confession. We make public confession by getting baptized. So when Paul says, you need to be, in order to be saved, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He might as well say, you need to be baptized to be saved. Now, remember, there are always going to be exceptions to that, but that is the typically, typical way in the New Testament church that you publicly confess your salvation, that you publicly confess that Jesus is Lord, that you identify with him. Baptism is your confession, and thus it's your salvation. Baptism is how you publicly identify with Jesus, and therefore it grants forgiveness of sins. Now remember that it's just a mechanism. It doesn't deny the necessity of the cross and the reality of the cross. It doesn't deny that there are, are clear exceptions to that rule. People who are on their deathbed who cannot be baptized nevertheless have grace freely open to them. It just means that this is the most natural mode of confession within the church. Now, as we cover that, it's actually kind of helpful to go over those things again, to be reminded of what we talked about last week. As we move into Matthew chapter 4, 
It can seem like Matthew 4 and Matthew 3 are next to one another, but completely different episodes and incidents in the life of Jesus, but they're actually very tightly connected. The same spirit that comes down upon Jesus is the spirit that drives him out into the wilderness. The very same voice and the same statement that that voice made over Jesus saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, is the very thing that the devil is going to pick up on and tempt Jesus with. It is a temptation of Jesus that is important and helpful for us. It gives us hope, both in that he overcame the temptation, but even in the fact that he undergoes temptation is helpful and important to us. So, Let us go to the text to be helped by this and also to see what kind of hope it can provide for us today. Let us read Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again? It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of our God. As we consider this text this morning, the first thing I want to put before you is our need to realize the problems of temptation. Realize the problems of temptation. The first thing we read post-baptism is that the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And, And simply in passing, although I don't want to make a big deal about it today, this is keeping with the themes of Matthew that Jesus is walking in the steps of Israel after they went through the Red Sea, which Paul calls their own baptism. They were immediately for 40 years out in the wilderness being tempted, being tested. And so Jesus undergoes this same thing where they fail in their temptation. Jesus stands up to the temptation having been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. We're also immediately told that this was the reason why the Spirit led him out there, was to put him in the crosshairs of the devil, which leads, I think, to the first question that's raised by this text, a question that kind of exists behind the text, and that is, how was Jesus tempted here? For most of us, the line between temptation and sin is very, very fine. If we're honest, we have a hard time knowing when we've crossed over between being tempted to do something and actually falling into it. When does temptation to gossip spill over into a sinful disposition to gossip? When does the temptation of attraction end up actually becoming lust? And if we're honest, it's very hard for us to know where that line is. We know that we've crossed it when we've crossed it sometimes, 
but it's very difficult to actually define where it is. There are some things we must say about this text and what's happening to Jesus here. First, Jesus was really and truly tempted by what Satan puts before him. Second, that temptation was handled by the very same means that are available to us. And third, Jesus handles all of this temptation without an ounce or any indication of sin in his life. If these three things aren't true, we're left with something of a meaningless text for us. The purpose of the passage is pulled out from us. If, if Jesus isn't actually tempted by what we read here, this passage has no meaning and, and ability to teach us anything at all. As a matter of fact, it goes directly against what Matthew says is supposed to happen because he says the Spirit drove him out that he might be tempted for the purpose of being tempted. So the, the text itself becomes silly and uh, sort of redundant. Secondly, there's a good deal of comfort that this passage ought to give us, which is also pulled out from under us. One of the ways we know that Jesus has sympathy for us, that he can, he can understand our, our struggling with temptation, our struggling even with sin, is because he has undergone temptation. He knows what it means to be tempted. And that builds up sympathy in him because he is able to feel the full weight of that temptation. If Jesus is able to swat temptations away like so many annoying flies, if he just handles all of this by his divine nature and says, because I am God, I feel no temptations, then, then we have a Jesus who can barely, if at all, sympathize with us when we face temptations. And third, then, the instruction of the passage for us becomes nil. If Jesus handles temptation that comes to him simply because he has a divine nature built into him, well, friends, that is, that is an arsenal that you and I do not hold. We don't have. I don't have a divine nature that I can swat temptations away with. Seems as though Jesus handles all of this. He is truly tempted in his human nature. He is truly able to sympathize with us. He truly gives us a, a way of which we can handle temptations by doing the same things that he expects us to do. Walk in faith, be led by the Spirit, and if certainly in this passage be led by Scripture. You might then even want to ask, if Jesus is so tempted, and it's clear that he's tempted so that he might be like us, after we're saved, why, why do we go through temptation? Why, why is it that God, who wants us to be holy, who wants us to be faithful to him in all things, sometimes lead us into a place where we are going to have the very things that we are prone to do that are unholy and sinful put before us. If he wants us to be holy and he knows that our desires are not always good, our purposes are sometimes mangled and wrong, our, our leanings are, are often away from the will of God, why would he put us in a situation where we can fall and become unholy? The first thing I would say to that is just to make sure that you realize that God never tempts us. James 1.13 says, No one should say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And in our passage, you, you should note that Matthew is very clear. The Spirit leads him out to the wilderness where he can be tempted, but the Spirit is not the one who is tempting him. It is Satan who is tempting him. So God never tempts you. That doesn't mean that God doesn't test you. 
And the major difference between those two things is when Satan tempts you, he is putting things before you so that you might fail. His whole purpose in doing it is so that you will trip up and fall. That is not the purpose of God. God is not an evil, wicked, or careless father who pranks his children into falling and then laughs at them when they do. But rather, he puts these things before you to show you the quality of your faith. He puts them before you not because he wants you to fail, but because he thinks that you will overcome. Peter says this, You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the purpose of these trials is that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows you to go through times where you will be tested so that the quality of your faith might be shown and evident even to you. So yes, you are to be holy, but we need to realize that holiness often is a product of being tested and of being tried. And untried, untested holiness is paltry and it's weak. What good is a holiness that crumbles under the slightest provocation? Holiness that is not refined by the fire of trial will be brittle and weak. This is also why James tells us that we should consider trials a joy of sorts because it helps lead us in right and good paths and we are built up by these things. And it's proven here in Jesus. Certainly, again, according to the divine nature in him, Jesus is incredibly holy, but he learns holiness. He learns what the book of Hebrews calls obedience by the very things that he goes through so that as God will put harder and harder things in front of him, eventually putting the cross in front of him, Jesus will have learned obedience by the things that he suffers. Remember, Jesus isn't some sort of holy heaven robot so inhuman that he is completely unfazed by such temptations. He is tempted. They are real. That makes him a good high priest for us and also allows him to sympathize with our weaknesses. Secondly, let us reject the proving of God. Let us reject the proving of God. These first two temptations deal directly with the proclamation that God has made over Jesus that you are my beloved son, this is my beloved son. In the first case, Satan says, if you are the son of God, if, if what God said was true, then look, there are some stones here. I know you're hungry. You've been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Why don't you turn some of these into bread? And there's part of that that's, that's selfishly motivated, but there's part of that as well. Satan is just asking him, can you do the work that you need to do to confirm what God has said? Is God's word good enough, or do you have to make it true yourself? Jesus refuses to prove himself or to prove God's declaration true. It's true, not because Jesus can prove it with his words, not because Jesus can prove it with his works, but it's true because the heavens rent and the Lord God declared it to be true. As Jesus says, we live not based on bread alone, but we live on what comes out of the mouth of God. And as that declaration has come down, he says, that is good enough for me. You don't, friends, have to prove yourself to be the child that your baptism clearly proclaims you to be. You have to do the things that God commands you to. And I don't want to make it seem like you don't have to do that. 
but you also don't have to go out of your way to prove that you fit in with Christians. You don't have to go out of your way to do the things that, that you think Christians ought to do. Too often, people proclaim things as Christian, as sort of the only viable Christian position, and they do so flippantly without a lot of thought about what the Bible actually says about those things. But we are to live on the words that God has spoken. And it's fine. Sometimes when people say, hey, this is the way that Christians are to walk, that's good and true. But don't take their word for it. Go to Scripture and see if that is actually the way that Christians are to walk. But to be honest with you, most of these things impact us in a much more personal way. There are plenty of people who struggle in this world. Either they struggle with sin, they struggle with depression or anxiety or fear, but they, they realize that in Christian circles, those things are, are viewed not only with a great deal of skepticism, but almost as a failure of faith. And you can easily then think that in order to fit in with Christians, in order to prove that I belong with Christians, I need to be joyous about all the events in my life. That when I, I face difficulties in my life, I just need to smile and grit my teeth and say, Jesus is good, he's sovereign, he's going to get me through it. Because that's what, what proves that you truly believe in Jesus is. And when difficulties come upon you, that you can't talk about how it is causing you to doubt. It's causing you to, to have sadness. It's hard to come into the house of God and to sing praises to God because you just feel dead. Listen, you, no less than Jesus, have to put on a face for anybody else. It's important that you maintain your faith, but you don't have to prove to people that you're a Christian. You don't have to, you don't have to walk in holiness of joy spilling over onto every single thing that you do. It is okay to be fearful. It's okay to have anxiety. It's okay to be depressed. God doesn't love you less. And it doesn't make you not a Christian. The whole point of, of the tempting of Jesus in this manner is to say, if that's true, you need to act in a certain way. And Jesus says, no, it's true because it's true. It's not true because I live up to anyone else's expectations. You don't need to prove God right that way. In the second temptation, there's a different kind of proving going on. If the first temptation is asking if you will act on what God says in order to prove it true, the second is asking if God will act in order to prove what he said is true. Satan is incredibly clever. Jesus responds by saying, I will, I will live by what comes out of the mouth of God. And he says, oh, is that true? Well, let's take you up to the pinnacle and then let me quote Psalm 91 to you. Because Psalm 91 says, if you chuck yourself off, that the angels will come and they will, they will be with you. If you're really the son of God, if you really think that the word of God is true, that's all. Jesus, of course, says, no, that's putting the Lord God to the test. I think what he means is this. It's very, very little difference here between what Satan asked Jesus to do and what a lot of prosperity preachers do when they say you're to claim the promises of God. You were, you were just going to stand there and you're going to say, listen, God wants me to be healthy, so I'm going to claim that I'm going to be healthy. God wants to give me a rich inheritance, so I'm just going to claim that inheritance and act like I already have that inheritance. That's not what we're called on to do. We're not called on to presume on the promises of God, but to trust in them. Much like last week we talked about, we're not called on to presume upon the grace of Christ, but to trust in it. And those two things are incredibly different. 
You don't get to act a fool and then call upon God's promises to make you look wise. That's not how it works. And make no doubt about it, throwing yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple is stupid. It's stupid. But that's exactly what Satan is calling for Jesus to do in order to prove that the word of God is true. It doesn't work like that. In each temptation, we're called upon not to act, but to trust. We trust that when God calls us as child in baptism, when he says, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased in Jesus Christ, that when he says that, it's not because of our work, it's not because of our, our character, not because of some latent ability that he senses in us, but solely because of his love, which never changes or wanes. Solely because of his election, which is sure and confirmed, and solely because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, which is done and completed. So we trust on that word. We don't look at our own strivings as proof, but listen to his word. Trust in his word and are held, as it were, in the very hand of the word of God. And further, we trust that his promises are true. When God says that we will be safe, we find no need to treat such words foolishly, putting God in the dock and putting ourselves in positions where our safety is called into question. That's foolishness. It's not trust. We trust that when life crumbles around us, when evil knocks on our door, we trust that when we receive harsh words for kind or violence for our peace or slander for the truth, that God will indeed be good and right to us. But we don't go seeking those things. Friend, reject the idea that you need to prove God true. Thirdly, respect the point of suffering. The third temptation is quite obviously different than the other two. First, what's obvious is that this, this idea of if you are the Son of God is gone, although I don't, I don't imagine that the full concept of the Son of God is gone here. We'll get around to that in a second. But there's something incredibly unsubtle about what Satan does here. The other two are fairly subtle. The other two seem to be, the first one seems to be a, a perfectly normal need. You, you are hungry and you can immediately fix that, right? I, if I were Jesus, I would weigh like 500 pounds because I'd be turning stuff into donuts all the time. I, don't, I have no will to resist that. Normal made things like that. Jesus is fasting and he can do it, but he refuses to do it. Right, so it's a normal need. The second one is challenging his faith in the word of God, which is an incredibly strong challenge and subtle, even if it seems really foolish in retrospect. This one just seems dumb on the face of it. Like you read that and you're like, there's no way Jesus would accept that. It seems like an incredibly wild promise. He shows them all of the nations. He says, they're all yours. And, and he throws in this idea that he shows them all of the world and their glory. This isn't like the foreclosed version of the world where people have just kind of let it go to pot. This is the, the best version of the world that you can have. And he says, it's yours. Jesus, it's yours. Most of the scholars I read through make it sound like this is something of a desperate attempt by Satan. They say things like, well, of course, this was rejected. But listen, I think that it is meant to be a real temptation. I don't think this reeks of desperation by Satan at all. If for no other reason, then Luke lists this as the second temptation, not the third, which is hard to believe that he is already desperate in the second attempt. 
I think this is something of a temptation for Jesus and for good reasons. And I want to lead you through those reasons first so that you can feel as close as possible the weight of this kind of obvious temptation for Jesus. First, it is quite clear that what Satan is offering to Jesus is nothing less than what the Father has already offered to him. So in Psalm 2, we read this. And by the way, Psalm 2 is probably, with Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in parallel with one another, is pretty much setting you up to understand all of the Psalms. They're kind of summed up in Psalm 2 and Psalm 1. Psalm 2 says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God looks at the Son. He looks at Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and he says, the world is yours. Just ask of me, and I will give it to you. Jesus knows that what Satan is offering him is meant to be his. This is the end goal that God has put him on the earth for, is to make the nations his inheritance. After all, that's exactly what he says when he's resurrected. He says, you're going to go out into all of the nations and to make disciples of them. But it's not just that he's offering him what is good in the end. The offer is to gain that without any war. The Gospel of Matthew seems to paint the kingdom of heaven as this sort of like incoming force, an invading power that's finally reached the borders of the earth. In Matthew 12, he talks about casting out demons. And they said, oh, he's, he's casting out demons by Beelzebub. And he says, if I'm casting out demons by Beelzebub, the kingdom of Satan can't stand But if I do it by the Spirit of God, then you know that the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. He goes on to talk about binding the strong man. The whole whole picture is of two kingdoms colliding together, Jesus leading that collision. He'll, He'll say in other parts of the gospel, I haven't come to bring peace but a sword. The the entrance of Jesus into this world is a violent entrance. It calls into question the entirety of, of the place of Satan. Satan is pictured as the ruler of the earth. In John 12, Jesus says the ruler of this world will be cast out. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is called the God of this world. And so what Satan is offering Jesus is exactly what God is offering Jesus. Without bloodshed, conflict, or difficulty, the world would not strive against the kingdom, but would be handed over to him who could rule it in perfection and justice. kingdom, the sympathy of Jesus would be over his people. Think of how much bloodshed for them they would miss out on. Think of all the the kindness and the goodness that is portrayed here by giving the kingdom without this war or bloodshed. There's no persecution for the people of God. There's no oppression, no wickedness. Jesus says that this is going to be the case in this world. Even in the the Beatitudes, which are coming up in chapter 5, the Beatitudes end, the high note of the Beatitudes is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. 
Jesus knows what his people are going to go through. And if you know anything about Jesus, he has a heart for his people to spare them and not a little bit to spare himself. He has to know that the cross is coming, that suffering is, is the, the, the very line that God has given him in this world. And it seems such a small thing. We read this as worship, if you will fall down and worship me. I think, again, that, that is the same word that we talked about earlier. I think it's meant to be lighter than that. I think just, just pay respects to me as the one who rules over these nations. In Psalm 2, we read that you're supposed to kiss the ring of the sun, kiss his hand. I think that's kind of what's going on here. Just respect me as the ruler of this world. Give me a little bit of homage, and it's all yours. And it's, it's over and done, split second. Think of all the suffering, all the evil, all of that that can be skipped, all the war and the nastiness that's going to go on that we can, we can miss completely. But Jesus does indeed see through it. To do this isn't just a small shortcut to God's ends, but it is to deny God's way. It's to look at God's plan and to look at Satan's plan and say, I think Satan's got this one better, Lord. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of righteousness cannot come by choosing a pathway that God has clearly forbidden. We might not understand all of it, we might not be able to see all of it, but suffering is part of the plan of God for Jesus, and it also is for us. We tend to want the ends of our holiness, the ends of the things of God without having to suffer for it. We want holiness, we want it now. We don't understand why we have to put up with our struggles when God could just give us holiness. We want patience, but we indeed want it now. Truth is, God has made our suffering in body and spirit and in mind to be one of the mechanisms by which the ends of our holiness are truly found. Do we really want to consider whether or not the world would be a better place with Jesus reigning over them who sides with Satan over God? Or that oppression would somehow cease with a, with a Savior who would turn his back on the very plan and the means of God? If so, then we should not think that our own ends can be achieved without pain and effort. Holiness, again, is forged in fire and trouble in the world. And true, true, we are granted absolute full righteousness upon the resurrection of the dead, but friend, you got to die first. Don't think that you can gain holiness without suffering, but embrace it, so long as it leads to righteousness, holiness, a firmer faith, and victory in the end. Don't lean on shortcuts. Trust the path of God. Lastly, this morning, I would ask you to rely upon the prominence of Scripture. Rely upon the prominence of Scripture. As most people recognize here, Jesus answers Satan in each instance with Scripture. And the point is all the more important because it's Jesus who does this. If there's anyone who should be able to, in his own wisdom, with his own insight, with his own logic, with his own emotional stability, to answer the very temptations that Satan puts in front of him, it should be Jesus. So the fact that Jesus doesn't give wise answers, but Jesus just purely relies on Scripture is incredibly important for us. Friends, knowing Scripture is the straightest path out of temptation. It not only is the light upon the path that we are to walk, the marker of the right way through the world, but it is here to 
give us motivation and strength to walk in that way. It doesn't just tell us where we are to go, but it helps us actually go down that path. It is here to help us deal with temptations, to help us and give us a weapon to battle the flaming darts of the enemy. I've been in churches, remember this a couple of years ago, I can't remember why I was there. We were on vacation somewhere, um, I think with family. We went into a church that was like super liberal and they had their, their rainbow banners everywhere. They, they were clearly affirming LGBTQ plus folks and, and they were proud of it. It was, it was everywhere. They were not, not even coming close to like slipping this in and, and saying like, oh, we also do this, but they were very loudly and proudly proclaiming it. And almost as a justification for all of it, on the wall, there were letters that spelled out the very clear message, God still speaks. As though this is the reason why we believe these things, because God still speaks. And that's a tricky thing, because there ain't one of us who wants to come back and say, well, no, God doesn't still speak. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he does. He, he still speaks. But how? If, if we are sort of mercilessly led under the moral metamorphosis of our culture, wafting from one position to the next, how are we to know if our position is from God or from the world? It makes us feel like James said, like we are just blown about by the winds of change. There's no sure foundation. Five years ago, we believed this. Today, we're going to believe that. Who knows where we're going to be in five more years? You just got to follow where the culture is going. It leaves you without a rock. It leaves you without a, a, a stable ground to stand upon. I would think that it's exhausting and frustrating. If only somehow God could give us a word from outside where we weren't led by our emotions or by our culture. If we were led by something more secure, more stable that has lasted through the test of time. Something like, I don't know, the Bible would be really helpful. And the Bible still speaks to us today. It still opens up to us and still talks about the very ways in which we are to walk through the world. True, it was written by dead men 2,000 years ago. All the more reason to uphold it and say, my goodness, how brilliant is Scripture. We stand upon it because it is the only sure foundation. But let me be very, very clear. That is not enough. Just flat out not enough. What happens in the second temptation is incredibly important. Jesus, again, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And what does Satan do immediately? He says, oh, you want me to use Scripture? I can use Scripture. It's not enough simply to stand on Scripture. Jesus couldn't just stand on it. He needed to know how to use it, how to interpret it, how to handle what de the devil threw at him. It's not enough just to say that the word of God is inerrant. It's not enough to say that it's infallible. You have to know how to use it and handle it rightly. For some reason, James kept coming up in my mind when I was, I was working on this this week, and James 2.9 might easily be, be kind of rephrased. In James 2.19, we, we are introduced to the fight between faith and works. And in that, James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. And you can almost hear that slow golf clap in the back. You do well, right? Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
could easily think that that says something along the lines of, you believe that Scripture is true, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You think that Satan doesn't know that when God speaks, reality is formed around what he says? Friends, he knows that better than you. Satan is happy to allow us to affirm the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture so long as we have no idea how to use it. He doesn't mind if you carry around a sharp two-edged sword so long as you're like a five-year-old on a sugar high who is much more likely to harm someone on their team than they are ever to damage the kingdom of Satan. He frankly just doesn't care. He's happy to use Scripture against the church. He has long since done it. Every major heresy did not stem from outside of the church. Every major heresy that really threatened the church always grew up from within it, from people who would hold up the word of God. Paganism didn't threaten the church. Wiccans didn't threaten the church. Spirit religions in Africa don't really threaten the church. Arianism threatened the church. Nestorianism threatened the church all from within the church because they too relied upon Scripture. It's not enough just to say it's inerrant and infallible. You, you have to know how to use it. It is good and necessary to say that it's inerrant and infallible, but it needs to be organized. It's like making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You need three things. You need bread, peanut butter, and jelly. But you need to know how to make it correctly. If you put peanut butter on the outside, you ruined it. You know, it's not hard, but at least you've got to know how to organize it. And that's the same way with the Word of God. You need to know how to arrange it the right way to actually have it be useful and good for you. This is exactly what Paul means when he talks to Timothy. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. He doesn't say a worker who knows that the Word of God is truth. Timothy, that's what you really need. No, Timothy knows that. It's not the point. The point is that you rightly handle it, that you know how to use it. You know how to wield that sword. So be people of the world, the word, not the world. Again, I ask myself, did I communicate that well? And the answer is almost always, sort of. Um, be people of the word, but more than that, a people who are trained in how to handle the word well. Because we all face temptations of many kinds. And while we're never free from sin, it doesn't mean that we can't know how to fight those temptations. This passage is beautiful for us in two major respects. Jesus helps us to see the template that we can use to fight temptations as we rely upon Scripture to guide and direct our lives, to be able to stand firm against temptation and do so without sin. But at the same time, it also demonstrates to us that he is a high priest who is able to sympathize with us so that when we do fall into sin, he is faithful and just. He is wanting and desiring to forgive us for our sins. He has taken your sin, so live holy before him. Fight temptation with scripture. Fly to Christ for forgiveness. And in doing so, overcome the schemes of the devil. Revelation 12 10 through 11 says this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him 
by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Let that be true of us. Fight temptation, flee to Christ, overcome the devil. Let's pray. Our God, I pray that you might help us with temptations. Give us wisdom, insight, and faith that we might overcome all of the desires of this world and all of the schemes of our enemy. Help us to be faithful to you in all things, that your glory might be first and foremost of our desires. We ask this for our good and for your glory. Amen.